0: I want like you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2, as we end our Advent series uh, this morning, we will have uh, some teaching from God's Word uh, tonight at the Lessons and Carol service, but I guess it, our official series is, it comes to an end this morning uh, with a second part of Matthew 2. If you've been with us for our Advent series, we took chapter 1 in two parts, and now chapter 2 in two parts. And the very end here of chapter 2 may be not a story you uh, just naturally relate uh, to Advent. This is, happens when Jesus is a toddler. Uh, it's not the birth narrative. It's, he's at least two, uh, and we know that from some contextual uh, points in the sermon, or in the passage, excuse me. Uh, this is when uh, Herod gives this edict to slaughter all the babies two years and, and younger uh, in all of Bethlehem. And yet I think this, this passage is, is horrific as part of it is. I think it fits actually well uh, in, in terms of Christmas and our mainly understanding what has Jesus come to do. And so much of what Jesus did on this earth informs what we can expect when we're in this world, but also He models so much for us. Uh, he has come to empathize and sympathize, as we'll talk about, but all of the sufferings, it's not just the cross, it's sufferings all throughout His life. Inform us that we ought to expect something similar, but look at what He has done for you and me. Uh, He has been a wonderful Savior to us, and all that He went through is not just the public ministry. It's all throughout His life, and I think that's one of the points that Matthew wants to make for us. Falling all underneath the heading of the sovereignty of God. I changed up my sermon title and points late in the week, uh, so I'm going. what you're going to hear me say is going to be different than what you see, uh, and that's my fault, okay, just because I, I changed it a little bit. God's sovereign love will factor into the sermon, but that's more point number one rather than the entirety of the sermon. With all that in mind, let me read for us Matthew 2, 13 through 23. Now, when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, "'Rise, take the child and his mother,' And flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. According to the time that we But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. O Lord, we ask that you would teach us from your word now, Lord, that we would see all that Christ has done for us, that it would give us hope, that it would make us trust you, O Lord, more and more. And indeed, Lord, we're sinners, but you are a great Savior. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the year 279 B.C., the Greeks, led by King Epirus, invaded the Roman Republic. Forty thousand troops they used, they went in for this battle, and they were victorious. The Romans lost 6,000 men that day, the Greeks only 3,500. In that battle, the Greek king, a man named Pyrrhus, he looked at the losses on his side and though they had been victorious, they suffered tremendously important losses. Many leaders, many of their best warriors had died in battle that day. And so King Pyrrhus, even though he had won the victory, withdrew his men from the battle knowing that the Romans would be able to replenish their forces more readily than he could. And this is what has been known ever since then as a Pyrrhic victory. Maybe you know that term. It means when you win a battle, you do so at such a difficult cost that it feels like a loss. We we don't use that term, but we use this idea very often in sports, right? You won the football game, but your star quarterback went down with an ACL injury. So you won, but boy, it didn't feel that way. Because you've lost your best player for the rest of the season. In the Christian life, sometimes that can feel, can't it, like one long Pyrrhic victory. We know that ultimately we are victorious in Christ, and yet we also know, if we're honest, that there is opposition and suffering. There is a cost to this Christian life. And so we ask ourselves often is it all worth it? I know that Christ has died for me, I know that He is victorious in the end, but Is it really worth it? Because I thought that becoming a Christian meant all my problems would be solved and that that God wouldn't let me go through these difficult things, and yet I see that that's not so. Is it all actually worth it? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about this, doesn't it? That God is constantly telling us and encouraging us in our suffering. We live in a broken and fallen and sinful world. There is a cost to be counted when we come to Christ. But the reason that we suffer is not because God doesn't care about us, or that He's not in complete control of everything, or that the suffering and opposition that you face is as a result of God sort of momentarily looking the other way and something sliding by. No, He is indeed in control over everything. And the fact that we are victorious in Christ in the end actually informs everything that we go through in this life that while it is a cost, it is a cost for our good. It is a cost for our benefit. And and the reason I can say that is because I see exactly that in the life of Jesus Christ. He wins. We win because we are in Him by by faith, do we not? It's not a pyrrhic victory at all. It's actually a marvelous victory, even those very hard and difficult things. So, two, two points to make from this Passage this morning. The one is God's sovereign love and then God's sovereign goodness. Before we get into the first point directly, let's set a lot of context here. Uh, This could be a completely contextual sermon. Uh, There's so much to set up, there's so many theological insights here, there's so much fulfillment happening in this passage. Uh, The whole uh, title to this series is God Always Keeps His Promises. And we could look at a lot of different ways that happens. I'll point out a few. But let me set the scene for you before we go into the application. The Magi have departed, the story that we looked at last Sunday. And now Joseph is told in a dream that he needs to flee to Egypt, which was not an unreasonable thing whatsoever. (laughs) Lots of people fled to Egypt. In fact, most historians believe that there was a colony in Alexandria in Egypt that had at this time as many as one million Jews. So Jesus and his family fleeing down to Egypt, they would have known people, okay? Likely they knew a lot of people who had since done this. And not just because of the safety of Jesus, this little child, but there's also a lot of symbolism. I told you last Sunday that if you read throughout the Bible, you see three different nations that are constantly popping up, Israel, Egypt, and Babylon. And we're going to see all of them, at least Babylon, by implication in this passage and in the last passage. But Jesus flees to Egypt, okay, to be safe from King Herod. I've mentioned back in the first sermon of this series and in a few of the sermons in the Sermon on the Mount the symbolism and the correlation between Jesus and Moses, that Jesus so often is cast as the true Moses, right? As the the better version of Moses. Moses delivered God's people out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. Jesus delivers us out of the bondage and slavery of sin, right? This sort of a heightened fulfillment of this deliverer. Pharaoh is trying to destroy God's people in Egypt Herod is trying to destroy God's people in Israel. Herod is serving and acting in this passage sort of like a new pharaoh. Pharaoh in Egypt tried to kill the firstborn son of God, which Israel is often called Jesus, the true firstborn son of God, right? And Herod is trying to destroy him. But of course, he fails. Jesus is cast as the successor to Moses as leading, or at least going through himself, a new exodus. He participates in an exile down to Egypt, just as God's people had been in exile, and then he comes out of Egypt in an exodus, just as God's people had. As Israel was oppressed in Egypt under the harsh rule of Pharaoh, so the infant Jesus is oppressed by having to flee to Egypt. Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus is going to pass through the waters of the Jordan River in his baptism. Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was tested in the wilderness for 40 days. Moses climbed Mount Sinai to receive the law. Jesus climbs the Sermon on the Mount to actually give the law himself. And many other uh, differences, or excuse me similarities I could mention. But Jesus here is identifying with his people Israel. He was exiled just like they were, and now he is, is coming out of an exodus, being delivered himself by the love of God and returning to the promised land, Israel. It's a, what we call a pattern fulfillment. God understands us in Jesus Christ because he did all the same things that his people had done and gone through. And he's identifying with the two big uh, events of the Old Testament, the exodus and then the exile but there's more. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 27, we looked at this well months ago, I don't remember how long ago, whenever we studied the book of Genesis, and you had Jacob and Esau, and Jacob tricks his father Isaac into giving him the blessing, already having tricked Esau, his brother, from the birthright. The king, King Herod, is an Edomite. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau. So just as Esau had been tricked by his brother, And when he found out he was tricked, he was angry and tries to kill Jacob, though not successful. King Herod, a descendant of Esau, has been tricked, has he not? And he's angry and he's trying to kill people because he has been tricked. This is just some Old Testament background here. Herod realizes that the wise men are not going to return to tell him where King Jesus is. They escape back to likely Babylon in a different way. And so Herod's mad. And so what does he do? He gives the order to slaughter all the baby boys in Bethlehem two years and under. Now, we're horrified by this, and we should be, but don't be too surprised. This is standard for Herod, unfortunately. Herod was an absolute monster. I don't know how else to say it. He slaughtered the last remnants of the dynasty that had preceded him he killed the Jewish high priest who had ruled before him. On one occasion, he executed more than half the Sanhedrin. On one occasion, he killed 300 court officers for seemingly no reason at all. He executed his own wife, his mother-in-law, and three of his sons. So when biblical critics come in and say, wait, there is no his secular historical account of the babies dying in Bethlehem, well, I think there's a reason for that. Because unfortunately, it was so unremarkable relative to the other things that he had done. The scope of what he did was small compared to other things that he had done. Scholars estimate that in Bethlehem, at that time, had about a thousand people. So how many baby boys would it have been? About 20. And that's awful, but maybe not in relation to the other things that Herod had done. He simply was a horrific person. And yet, God uses this to carry out His purposes, just as He always does. So, that's the first fulfillment. It's the, out of Egypt I called my son. Joseph and his family flee, and then they come back. The second prophecy that's given is from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, where it speaks of Rachel. You know, Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob, she dies in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin And she's known from that point forward as the sorrowful mother of the people of Israel. And so when God's people are carried out of of Jerusalem and the southern kingdom off to Babylon in exile, they travel through the city of Ramah where they believe that Rachel was buried. And so what the prophet Jeremiah imagines is Rachel in her tomb weeping for God's people as they go into exile. And Matthew grabs that verse and suggests here that Rachel continues to weep because of what's happened in Bethlehem. Okay, just trying to set the scene for you here. This is all that Jesus, the child, has been brought into. What does that have to do with Matthew chapter 2? Well, I think Matthew's suggesting that the climactic moment of the tears of Rachel are in the Savior having to flee and the baby boys being killed. When Israel was a child, the prophet Hosea says, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. It's the rest of the verse that I want to use for the remainder of this point. Yes, out of Egypt I called my son. That gives some context for Jesus. But, but notice how it begins. I loved him. When Israel was a child, I loved him. They, they always loved him. But, but the focus here, I loved my son Israel. I love my son beloved son, Jesus. And the reason that Matthew frames it this way is to teach us an important lesson, I think. It's to set the foundation for where he's going next, and it's this. No matter what happened to Jesus, this was always true. I love him. I love him. It's the foundational point of your life. No matter what happens to you, it may not feel like love. That may not be the experience or the, the thought that comes to your mind, but the foundational point is He loves you and He cares for you. And, and that really ought to inform everything else that comes, right? He loves you. So there's boundary markers, really, around Jesus' life. He has the love of His heavenly Father. If you're a parent, you've no doubt done what I'm about to describe. If you're a child, you've no doubt participated in this, so you can relate, I think, on some level, no matter who you are. You have been in a swimming pool, and your child has been on the edge of the swimming pool, and you have tried to coax them into jumping into your arms, right? You want them to learn how to swim and to be comfortable in the water. Unfortunately, it takes a long time for you to coax them to jump in that first time. Just come on, jump into daddy's arms. Everything's going to be fine, and they don't think that. They, they are certain that they are jumping to their death, right? But eventually, right, you, you convince them to jump. And then what do you do for the next hour? They just uh, over and over and over and over. It, okay, it's time to go home, please. You know, that's not one more time. But you're, there's a lot of lessons going on there, right? You're teaching them to trust you. You're teaching them that swimming's fun, Right, you're teaching. Daddy, mommy can be trusted, and then over and over and over again, they realize, oh wow, indeed, mommy and daddy can be trusted. Far more than a child learning to trust their parents, Jesus is learning to trust his heavenly Father, and we are learning to trust him as well. We assume that we can learn that trust by everything going wonderful, and we would know to appreciate it, and that's just not the way it goes. We learn his love by the opposition and the hardship and the suffering that we face, and we see, thank you, Lord, for the comfort. Thank you for how you have cared for me in the midst of all of this. So the foundational piece of this is God loves me. God loves his son. Out of Egypt, I called the son whom I love. Jesus is in exile in the first part of this passage, but his deliverance is sure. Why? Because his father loves him. We are in exile in this world, but so long as we trust in his son, Jesus Christ, we will be delivered. So secondly, it leads us to see God's sovereign goodness. If the foundation is love, well, how do I then experience everything in my own life? I see it from his good hand. So Joseph is told by the Lord to return back to Israel. Okay, it's safe. It's safe. Herod the king has died. Uh, unfortunately, as they come back, they learn that Archelaus, his son, has taken over, who's about three times worse than his father had been. So they can't go back home where they would want to be and around the people that they know. They've got to go now to the Galilean region, uh, which of course is underneath the direct hand of God. That's going to be Jesus' sort of headquarters for all of His earthly ministry. It's going to be a place that's not everybody worships God there. Not everybody cares about who a Messiah might be. It's a sort of a mixed bag and a mixed race of people there. But that's exactly what God wanted for His Son. He's being opposed. He's suffering in exile. They're not around people that they know. It's not like He grew up around a lot of people that worshiped the same as Him and, and believed the same things that He did And the comfort of His family. Actually, He didn't. But God always keeps His promises. None of these things were a surprise to the Father. In fact, they were directed by the Father. None of the suffering, none of the exile, none of it was, oh goodness, I I lost control for a minute. No, it it was a part of His sovereign and good plan. God's hand was upon Him. Those that opposed Jesus could not possibly thwart the coming of the kingdom of God in the going to the cross, in the paying for your sins, even though it looked like it could happen, it couldn't because it was God's plan. This is a tremendous comfort to us, Westminster. There is nothing nor no one that can stop what God is doing in your life. It's a tremendous comfort for us, Westminster Presbyterian Church, that the gates of hell cannot prevail against his kingdom and its growth. It can't. It can't overcome the love that God has for you in Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. It can't be stopped. He always keeps His promises because of His love and because of His goodness. Christ's trials, His trials, not just His earthly ministry and the scribes and Pharisees who opposed Him in the cross. It includes that, but don't you see all throughout His life? The trials were underneath the direct providence of God. They were under His sovereignty. Christ's trials, then, were a part of God's plan. He had ordained them. None of this was an accident. None of the things that happen in your life are accidents either. Even from His earliest days, Christ endures, His family endures and yet God protects. The Father willed these difficult circumstances into the life of His precious and beloved Son. What makes us think those things won't also happen to us? Jesus was not born into nobility. He was not born into a place where everything was comfortable all the time. He had to sojourn in a life of unbelief and polytheism And finally, he comes back to the promised land, and he can't live amongst his relatives. He's got to live amongst people that oppose his way of life and the God that he serves. Why? Have you ever asked that question in your life? Why? Why did God let this happen? Why did he let that happen? Why do I have to endure this? Because I do not like it. Well, I can't give you the reason for it all, but it is interesting that the Scriptures do give us a reason for why the Father allowed things to happen to the Son. And he tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that Jesus, the Son, learned obedience through that which he suffered. That the Father even had to teach the Son obedience. Isn't that interesting? I think what intuitively we think, well, Jesus sort of came out of the womb knowing everything he needed to know. That's not so. He had to learn through this suffering. He had to learn through this opposition that the Lord used for his good in so many ways. And so for us in our trials, we must keep Christ's trials in view. That even the Savior had to go through what we go through. You know, there are people in this room this morning who have endured hardships that I know that I personally can't understand. I know some of your stories, you have you have gone through things that I I can offer my sympathy to you, but I can't offer my empathy. I don't I don't understand. It's tremendously difficult things. There's heartbreak and grief that you have endured, things that you thought you were certain, this is going to push me over the edge. I can't do this. I can't endure that. You have lost loved ones. You have lost a spouse, a parent, a child, and many other things. But here's one thing I do know, that the Lord did not bring this into your life to harm you. He didn't mean it for your harm. It was not an expression of his meanness to you. Why he allowed it, I don't don't know exactly, but I know it's not because he didn't love you or that he wasn't in control of it, but that it's directly underneath his, yes, good plan for you. And his intention for it is not to push you further away, but actually to draw you in. And it's not all just out of control and who knows what's going to happen next because apparently God's not in control. No, indeed He is in control. His goodness is in control. How do I know this? Because I look at what the Father allowed the Son to endure and He cared for Him. It wasn't because He didn't love His Son. No, it was because He loved Him that He took Him through these things. And the providences that the Father gave to the Son were not only, not only so that we would trust Him deeply with our lives. He is our great high priest, as Hebrews 4 says, and so we do what? We come boldly to the throne of grace. It's not just that. His sufferings and opposition in this life are not just so we can pray to Him. His sufferings saved you from your sin. His sufferings led to His death so that you would not have to experience that spiritual death forever. It's no Pyrrhic victory. Westminster. It's a glorious and joyful victory that then, once I know what he's done, I then can look back over my life and, see, and say, you drew me closer because of that. You used this for not just my good, but I was able to use this trial in my life to minister to someone else and to encourage them in it. It reminds me that I've gone through the valley of the shadow of death and So did Jesus. In fact, he went through the actual valley of death. He knows what it's like to the valley to be the place of vision, as we often quote that wonderful Puritan prayer. He knows what it's like to cry out to the Father, if it be your will, O Lord, that this cup would pass from me, but but not my will, yours be done. He understands us. He understands that grief and pain. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know this heavenly Father who does not mean these things for your ill, but for your good? And there's a great truth, I think, that is the one real difference this morning, Westminster, between us and Jesus. He signed up for it. He wanted this. Before the foundation of the world, the Father said to the Son, you're going to redeem your people from their sin you are going to suffer yourself. And he said, I will do it. He knew this was coming. He knew this was coming, and it says in in the book of Hebrews, it was the joy that was set before him. He did it joyfully and willingly for you. That's the Savior that we love and serve. That is the Jesus that we worship here in Christmas, the one that knew that the suffering was coming and yet did it because he is rich in mercy. He's abounding in steadfast love. He is gracious unto you. And as we'll talk about in John chapter one this evening, he comes to give you grace upon grace, literally grace heaped upon grace. And if you don't know that grace this morning, the tank's not empty. There's plenty there for you. If you would come and acknowledge, I need that grace. I, I don't have what it takes. I I can't do this on my own. He, I have plenty of grace and love and mercy for you. He says. I don't know if you're big goal setters. We have any goal setters in the room? I'm a goal setter. I do some most of them. I don't always do all of them. But right now, in 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 the year is when I do my goal setting. I I reflect on 2023, and then I look to the setting goals for 2024. And there are lots of different things. It's. It's personal goals, it's professional goals. I have fitness goals, and I have, you know, reading goals and things I want to do with my family, and even spiritual goals. You know, Lord, help me do this in 2024. Help me to forget myself and focus on you, or whatever it may be. If I could, let me suggest two for us this morning. Two goals, spiritual goals, we can call them, for 2024. The first is this. You would have a goal of reminding yourself every single day, I am God's adopted child and he loves me. I am God's adopted child by his grace and he loves me. It's a foundational point. It's who I am. It's it's my identity. I'm his child and because I'm his child he loves me. And he's given himself for me. And the second is God is completely sovereign over everything not only in my life, but in this world, and he means to work those things together for my good and the good of the people around me. He loves me, and he is sovereign, and he works those things for good. Those would be wonderful truths to remind ourselves of again and again and again in this coming year. He loves you, and his providences are always meant for good. I hope you'll take some time You'll take some time today or even these few days in between Christmas and New Year to reflect on these things. Reflect on God's love for you and His goodness for you. Christ went through all the same things. He's a Savior that can be trusted, but not just someone to be trusted. He is the one who died for your sins. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For the sermon archive, go to wpcjc.org Forward slash resources forward slash sermon hyphen archive. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible, The Holy Bible, English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishers. Used by permission. All rights reserved. ESV text may not be quoted in any publication made available to the public by a Creative Commons license. ESV may not be translated in whole or in part into any other language. Verbal credit must also be given to the ESV.